following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today at 2 Samuel chapter 18, nearing the end of our consideration of David's life and example as a man being made and remade by God. Once again, looking at a kind of mountain peak, or maybe we really should call it a valley, in his experience uh, that requires you to pick up some context from surrounding chapters. I'll trace a little bit of that in my message. I have less time than usual this morning, so be patient with me. Second Samuel 18, I'm reading verses 1 through 18, and then the last three verses of the chapter as well. This is David's response to the revolt of his gifted son, Absalom, who tried to take his kingdom for himself and revolt against his father. We read, Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by the hundreds and the thousands. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. The loss was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. He was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head was caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I had in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life 
and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones, and all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. So he called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. If you'd skip down to verse 31, this is the word of Absalom's death coming to David by a man from the country of Cush. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And this is the word of God. I ask you to imagine a man meeting with his physician after he's had a battery of tests to discover what the medical problem might be that's been plaguing him. And the doctor says, George, I'm ready to give you a verdict. You have a large tumor in your abdomen. And it's a dangerous type of cancer, it appears. We have to operate. We have to get it out before it kills you. Well, what if the patient said this? Doctor, I hear you. Thank you for your analysis. But let me ask you, would you please deal gently with my cancer? This tumor has been part of me for some time now, and I would hate to lose all of it all of a sudden. Wouldn't that be a very strange thing to say? And yet I would have you see that King David said that very same thing about his murderous, mutinous son. A son who would have gladly killed his father David said to the soldiers who went out against him, Go gently with the young man, Absalom. He was speaking about someone who was fully in the attempt by cunning and deceit and violence to steal his own throne. And yet, the words of grief that that chapter 18 of 2 Samuel end with are words from the heart of a father. Our text in 2 Samuel brings to my mind countless Christian parents I have talked with in various situations over many years of ministry. People who have told me various wrenching stories of great pain they carry about an, a young adult or middle-aged adult or older adult child of theirs who has turned their back 
upon them, the parents, and upon God. And I can think about praying with people who were crying and very distraught about some high-maintenance young adult in their family circle who just seemed to delight in throwing lightning bolts at parents and siblings and everyone around them. And I know this is not an academic subject. I don't have individuals in mind that I designed this sermon for, but in a group of this size, I know that I speak to those who have wayward sons and daughters, who for whom you have prayed, you have pled with God that he would turn them back to himself and to their family. But it hasn't happened yet. Is there a moment anywhere in the Bible where a parental wail of greater misery or irony is heard than David's words at the end of 2 Samuel 18? Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, I would have died instead of you. This is a king who is no stranger to death or to murder or to tears or to sin or to deceit, but no event in his life seemed to combine all these things into one package in a more agonizing way than this very short civil war of Absalom's that ended in his bizarre death, hanging with his head and hair entangled in a tree and General Joab's spears in his heart. For David, it was the end of a political crisis, but it was a calamity for a father. We hear in verses 16 to 18 that Absalom had two stone memorials to his life here. One, he built himself. I can imagine him going to the stone merchant saying what he wanted on it. He had no son, so he said, I'm going to put up a monument because I'm already a legend in my own mind, and I better make sure that Israel will always know it. And he built this monument. I don't know what it said, but it was in the Valley of Kings where kings' monuments were put. He built it to himself. But then there's the other monument that was just a rude hole dug in the ground in the woods where he died, where they tossed his bloody corpse and threw stones on top of it. And I ask you, which of those two memorials was more appropriate for Absalom? As we visit briefly David's mourning for his son here, my practical goal in this message is that perhaps parents who are in some kind of pain, in some way approximating David's over his son, might learn first of all to sort out what is your fault in the whole thing, but then also to consider carefully what is your offspring's fault and responsibility. And in the last analysis, to know that God himself is the ultimate aggrieved parent who knows deep pain for wayward children. First of all, just to recap and and make sure you have the understanding of the context here of a story that began in chapter 13 Let's summarize very quickly the story behind David's lament for a lost son. I told you last time, if you were here with us, I know not everybody hears every message, but if you go back to chapter 13 and read forward to where we are, you read some shocking things. The story of Amnon, the firstborn son, who probably would have been the heir apparent after David, 
a, a very sinful man who desired his beautiful half-sister, Am, uh, Absalom's actual sister. He sexually assaulted her. Absalom, in retribution, plotted and killed Amnon. Then he fled. Then he came back. After fleeing, he came back for a period of time. And instead of David putting him on trial or bringing some justice against him, David acknowledged that he was there in the kingdom but shunned him for two years. And that was a blow Absalom, the vain, proud man, didn't know how to deal with. After two years of isolation, even though he was living right there in Jerusalem, Absalom revolted, had himself declared king, and thousands of the army of Israel followed him. The main body, apparently, of Israel's army went to this young, charismatic, handsome leader who had played up to the people. Chapter 17 tells an interesting little advance from last week how David planted a man named Hushai. Hushai was one of David's great advisors, a very wise man. And he stayed in Jerusalem at the king's advice. Absalom didn't trust him. He said, you're my father's advisor. How can Hushai said, I am the man for the king. If you're the king, I'm your man. Now, that was deceptive. But Hushai then gave advice to Absalom, which misled him to set up his troops in a way that was advantageous to David. So David was working to defeat this revolt, even in that quiet palace way. David's general Joab was a man with a strong mind throughout these chapters of this book. He has always acted on his own wisdom and with his own thoughts foremost. He ignored the king's plea to go easy with Absalom. And he did what he thought was right and thrust the spears into the man who, classically we understand, was somehow caught by his neck or his hair in the limbs of a tree. What an awful way to die. You know, you never stop being a parent. David became so unhinged by this grief that he couldn't function. If you want to read forward into chapter 19, you find he, all he's doing is weeping and mourning all day long. And finally, Joab, the blunt practical general, comes to him and basically says, King, what are your soldiers going to think? You are here mourning over one who was your enemy instead of rewarding your friends who fought and risked their lives for you. Wake up, David. And it seems that his brutal way of getting to the bottom line facts did indeed get through to the king. Now, with that of what happened, I want you to to ask with me these questions. What can we learn from this parent in pain that might possibly carry over to us in our day? First of all, I want you to see a father blaming himself. Would to God that I could have died for you, Absalom. This was a father who knew that he was part of the cause of what sent his son the wrong way. A lot of it was neglect. David, two of his greatest sins were the gathering of many wives. We've talked about that in recent weeks. He was completely disobeying God's Word in doing that. And, of course, that brought the many children, and he was very unwise in how he managed or really didn't manage his children. And so the sins of the father were visited on the son. And David now is riddled with guilt, knowing it was a lack of his doing things he should have done that sent Absalom in the way that he went. David needed to hear what Ephesians 6, 4 would say centuries later in the New Testament after his life when Paul wrote there a a poignant word, fathers, 
Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. There are many parents who are in denial about how they might be poorly parenting, either not doing the job at all or doing it in a way that mishandles their young people. And I think we all must examine ourselves in this light and be willing. Perhaps it takes another person. I think we often don't have enough self-realization to see our mistakes as parents. Maybe we need to sit down with someone else, a pastor, a counselor, and say, here's the problem I'm having. Here's what's going on. First of all, help me. I can change myself, perhaps, before I can change my young person, my young adult. What do you see that I need to change? And that's a hard truth to face, that you might need to really repent and change in the way that you are dealing with a young adult in your life. I believe it may involve confessing something to the young adult who needs your discipline and your modeling. Are you able to even model vulnerability before them? to show them that you don't think you're always right or that you're the perfect parent or the one who's never made a mistake. You will not lose their respect if you can courageously be vulnerable before them and show them that you're a weak sinner saved by grace just as they are. I remember a moment of realization, and I tell it with embarrassment, not pride, in my own life as a father, and I told it in the first service with the son present who I was speaking about. When I had spoken to my son, who was older elementary age, I believe, at the time, very angrily about something he did, criticizing him hard, there was anger, there was even belittling of him in the way I spoke. And a couple hours later, he had gone to bed and was asleep, and I was I had a conscience that was very alive, telling me how I was wrong. I knew that I was bound to go away early the next morning for, I don't even remember what it was, but I was going to be away overnight. I could have woken him up early in the morning and talked to him. Maybe that would have been better. But instead, I wrote a note, and I said, Son, your father sinned against you yesterday. Seriously, my anger was wrong. My belittling of you was wrong. Will you forgive me? I won't tell you a happily ever after story. My son never never came and acknowledged that he got the note, but I know he got it. And I hope he knew that his father was a human being. We need to be able to say to our children, here is what the Lord has taught me. I've made mistakes. Some of them have been made with you. And I hope... I was, although I was foolish enough to learn things the hard way, I hope maybe you can learn it easier than I did. But there's another lesson here, and I don't think it's all pointed at the parent and what the parent does wrong. It's a good thing that David knew he was wrong. It's a good thing that he felt so guilty and shamed that he said, would that I had died, but let me turn it inside out, because that's not everything this text has to say. In fact, I think it's very important to see what almost sounds like the opposite, and that is to say that once we do understand how we have erred as parents, we have got to understand that our children are also free moral agents who make bad choices and accept bad influences 
and do things that they must stand one day before God and explain or accept the blame for. It's a good thing to say where I was wrong, but there is not always a one-to-one connection in everything that goes wrong in the life of a child, a teenager, a young adult, an older, a middle-aged adult. It's not always a connection to you, parent. Every pastor's had people come and hold before them the verse of Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And every pastor's had somebody bring that in, knowing they have a real prodigal in their family, and say, here, pastor, what's wrong here with the Bible? I did this. I trained up the child in the way he should go, and look at him now. What's wrong with this promise from God? Well, the first thing is it's not a promise from God. It's a proverb, and there's a difference. A proverb is a statement of general wisdom. Generally speaking, if X is done, Y will result, generally speaking. It's a wisdom saying. It's not a firm, intractable promise from God that says, you do these things, you take your child to Sunday school every single year, and voila, perfect Christian will result. doesn't say that at all. Certainly, there are things in the child's life, influences that come to bear that the Christian parent doing many, many right things cannot counteract. I've seen families, I'm not pointing at anyone in particular, I'm thinking broad in general, but I've seen them. I've been around long enough, I don't even have to include this congregation. With enough different families, I've seen the daughter who grew up as the godly example, the the fine young woman who had wonderful character and a noble career and so on, and and here's her sister, the black sheep. Why? Same family, same influences, same treatment. And we agonize. Why is that? We can't always answer it. Every single individual has things they react to that leave them eventually in adult accountability before God. Look at Absalom here. He couldn't couldn't go to his death saying, hanging there in the tree, thinking for a few moments about his life, realizing he's about to die, and say, it was all my father's fault that I ended up here. Because surely he would think about his own rebel nature. The people who advised him, who advised him wrongly. And he was a man, after all, who never asked forgiveness of anybody, never expressed a word of regret, never expressed anything about faith in God or any higher power than himself. We live in the age of the social victim who's able and willing to tell us how whatever's happening to him is somebody else did it. It's never their fault, is it? I'm sorry, Mr. Sarnayev in Boston, you're responsible. You put a backpack with a bomb in front of children and you killed them. You're responsible. There is a time when you cannot foist it off on someone else. Romans chapter 14 verse 12 rips the ground out from under the popular idea today that it's always somebody else's fault by saying, we shall all give an account of ourselves to God. Mom and dad, the helicopter mom, won't be there to take the blame. The dad who always pays to get you out of trouble won't be there. 
child raising is not an automatic formula. You know, we just we had the the Pennsylvania Farm Show, and we don't have very many farm families in this congregation, but. You know, we always hear about the prize-winning steer or something that a young person in 4-H has raised for the farm show. And, well, how do you raise a champion steer? Well, honestly, I think it must be a lot easier than raising a child, a godly child. What do you have to do after all? You know, give them enough hay, give them enough grain, make sure they get vitamins, groom them, take care of them. And if you don't get grand prize, you'll at least get a hefty beef animal that you can sell for top price at market. It'll work. It's a pretty simple formula. Child raising is not like that. It's a lot more complex. There are a lot more factors intersecting all over the place. Decisions to be made, not just by the parent, but by the child, who's no longer a child as they grow and mature. Parents, it's a simple truism almost a cliche to say we think we do, but we do not own our children. We don't. I thank God for the miracle of four godly, mature, responsible children. And I say, how did that happen? And I know I didn't do it. My wife might have done it, but I didn't. And I really say, sorry, Carol, the grace of God did it the grace of God. I don't have a formula. I'm not going to write a book on child raising because I couldn't. I wouldn't know what the first chapter would say. It might say, you don't own your children. They're on loan to you. Pray over them. Model godliness for them. Discipline them with firmness but love. And ask the Lord to make them his own. Well, in conclusion, David's tragic example as a father here teaches us a little bit of how our God and Father, how he is a father to millions of prodigals. There's more here than just a king with a soft heart grieving for a son. There's an echo here of what you're going to hear later from Jesus in Matthew 23 when he stood at Jerusalem and and called out to the people of God, the, the Jewish people there to whom he came as Messiah, Oh, Jerusalem! How often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. He blamed them, you see, because they wouldn't have their own Messiah. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, has the words of the Lord saying, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I rather that they would turn from their ways and live. They're responsible for running from me. And so David crying out, O Absalom, my son. Yes, on one hand it was human love speaking too late to make the change that was desired. He couldn't bring his son back. But there's a better note of hope for you and maybe for the prodigal in your family because as long as we or those for whom we pray and those whom we seek to influence for the Lord are living and breathing. They are potentially God's children. And they must fight him off and flee from him if they're going to end up apostates like Absalom. There's hope that they might yet turn and look to the Lord. And your prayers should be constantly seeking that. No matter how many years you have to keep praying. Proverbs 122 has the Lord saying to every rebellious son or daughter these words, a question, how long? 
Will scoffers delight in their scoffing? And fools hate knowledge. And he addresses those scoffers and says, If you will turn at my reproof of you, behold, I will pour out my Spirit on you. Your heavenly Father sent Jesus Christ to come and do what was required at his cross and in his empty tomb to claim prodigals back. And so I say to you, parents of any age, if you have a prodigal in your family extended circle, or perhaps even if you are an Absalom, as long as you still live and breathe on this earth, it's not too late to turn to God in Jesus Christ and to return and find your pathway home. God has made that pathway straight. It leads right to the cross of Jesus. Father, I pray for the pain that some parents surely bear here today. They have names for those who are their Absalom, and they've been praying a long time. And Lord, I wish I could say to them, I guarantee to you they'll come home. I can't say that. But I pray, O God, that your Holy Spirit might work upon and influence many, that parents' prayers might never cease, and many might turn so that David's pain does not have to be ours. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.